You are listening to Future Voices, a podcast brought to you by Beha Futures Foundation. Welcome everyone to another episode of Futures Foundation's podcast. Our official podcast name, of course, is Futures Voices. Why? Because we're speaking to the most successful and inspiring Bosnians and Herzegovinians all over the world. And today's guest is very, very special again. I know that we say that about every speaker. They truly are. But today is going to be very intriguing. We have someone who's an incredible engineer, scientist, CEO, but most of all, he's an entrepreneur. He's all-rounded with his skill sets. Uh, joining us today is Mr. Mirza Tsifric. And on the other side, I also have my co-host, the wonderful Miss Aida Hajic, who's joining us today from Sarajevo. And uh, Mirza is joining us today from Boston, Massachusetts, or somewhere around Boston, Massachusetts. We'll say that's close enough. Mirza, welcome to our podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you guys, the opportunity to speak to the uh, Bosnian community, diaspora back home and all over the world. Um, I'm excited to be here. Okay, let's, let's kick things off uh, very, very simply, Mirza, because um, you've, you've spent quite a bit of time in the United States now. But where did this whole Mirza Tsiafridge story start? Where, where are you actually from in Bosnia and how did you make your way over to the United States? I'm sure it wasn't a simple journey. No, no, it was, uh, I took a Lufthansa flight, uh, landed <laughs> in Boston. <laughs> that was the last part of the journey. That was the easiest part. Getting to the Lufthansa flight <laughs> took, <laughs> took moving mountains. Um, look, I was born in Tuzla in 1977 um, and uh, to a wonderful family and a wonderful community. And, um, you know, did my school there and uh, did my electrical engineering high school. And, uh, you know, I lived uh, in Bosnia at some of the most interesting and most challenging times. I was 14 years old when the war started approximately. And so I lived my teenage years in the war in Bosnia. And uh, it's very interesting, you know, being a kid during that time. You really uh, just kind of live your life. Uh, you take it in stride, the things that come your way, the challenges, but you really are mostly teenager and mostly concerned about, you know, girls and riding bicycles and just, you know, the usual teenage stuff and all this adult stuff where you can't ignore it. It's there, but you don't really, um, you don't really, uh, you know, immerse yourself in it. But interestingly enough, now that I have four children of my own and I'm much, much older, I go back to those experiences almost on a daily and a weekly, regular basis in many aspects in personal life and business. So living through that time, you know, is something that's with you forever. And the, the, the depth of experience and the challenges that you see other people facing is just an incredible, incredible source of inspiration and, and, and work. And so for me, leaving Bosnia was not escaping anything. It was going to, capture the future, capture the opportunity, enrich myself, the experience, the knowledge. Um, I really wanted to uh, study. I wanted to study engineering. I wanted to study language. And I wanted to be at a cutting edge of things. And you'll see the, the theme of what we're doing now in Bosnia, what we have been doing. I think as soon as I landed in America, my first thought was, okay, how am I going to help Bosnia? That was the first thought, I think, as soon as we got there. It wasn't about personal gratification or or, or, or interest. And so, you know, that experience of living there has taught me to do many great things for, for our home, for the people that they're left behind. And, uh, and it's now I'm super inspired by people like you, uh, who, who have put us, have pulled us all together to, to have opportunities like this to talk. And, uh, I'm very excited about that. But that's my uh, long winded summary of, you know, coming from Tuzla, Bundavica, uh, Autobus, for like 38 hours to Sarajevo uh, through, you know, Warren Torn, Mostar at the time, et cetera. And then um, and through the Mothers Foundation in Zagreb, uh, having an opportunity to land here in Boston. And I've ever since been here in Boston. It's now been uh, 25 years, um, just about now. Usually the last sentence brings me somewhere. And But I would start with really your background. I'm amazed always when people combine all of these different backgrounds that they have and you have a background in engineering 
you combine it to, uh, with artificial intelligence, you combine it with biology, and you combine entrepreneurship. Would you tell us how it came to the foundation of Veritas? Be happy to, and I'll, I'll take a couple of step back, steps back and tell you a little bit about, you know, we, whatever we do, whatever we carry with our self-sport, we carry the torch of all the people before us. And so Tuzla indeed is a very interesting place. When I think about Tuzla and what Tuzla stood for and capabilities and the knowledge and the people that we had there, it both makes me elated to know that, you know, we had the, you know, technological advantages and the knowledge and the education and, and you know, societal organization, you know, a long time ago that was cutting edge, world class, no question about it. And it also makes me sad that we don't have it anymore. And, but I go back full circle and say, if we've done it before, we'll do it again. When, growing up in Tuzla, I was a, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things I did was, you know, I was a radio amateur, right? So during the war, we were the people you know, on the radios communicating, you know, passing messages, giving families, to, you know, together and talking and so forth. And, you know, radio amateur clubs across the country, especially in Tuzla, you know, they were filled with engineers, engineers that work in the power plants, that work in the, you know, chemical factories. I mean, the industrial complex in Tuzla was incredibly powerful. Even today, when you look at it, you know, whatever is left behind, just the carcasses of old buildings and, you know, metal and so forth, nothing of the similar scale is being built anywhere in the country or in the region for that matter. And so this knowledge, you know, how to run a high-speed manufacturing, highly complex industries like that 40, 50 years ago. That was cutting-edge stuff. I mean, that's the AI of today. Uh, we were blessed to have people like that around us, educators, teachers, guide us, you know, engineers, doctors, professors. And so for me, it was just natural that coming here to Boston, the next generation of that level of cutting-edge stuff is really intersection of technology and biology. You know, the word biotech gets confused with a variety of different things. Oh, you're a biotech company, but that's really what it means. It means really using engineering and technology in applications of biology. And that can lead to things in healthcare, human health, or it can lead into areas like synthetic biology, where we're reprogramming the cells and so, you know, biological material to produce different things, to uh, produce organic materials versus plastics and biodegradable things and and we're just at this really at the early early stages of where like you know bill gates is of the world war with technology and computers and the internet in using technology in biology and engineering and so it's just natural that that's what i'm doing and if you lived in boston you know you realize that that's really this has become the epicenter of um, you know biology and uh, biotech companies in the world nothing nothing like it exists so i'm blessed and lucky to be here and uh, uh and this is where we uh, started veritas and it started two other companies prior to veritas it's a very entrepreneurial community here you're surrounded you have this intersection of universities and investment capital it's a very it's a it's considered a super cluster for biotechnology relative to other clusters that exist. You have hospital systems that are cutting edge. You have Harvard, you have, you know, MIT, you have Boston University, you know, over 40 universities alone. And so this is the right place to learn. And I'm very excited about taking this experience and replicating it in Bosnia in places like Tuzline elsewhere, because it's been done before. It can be done. It's going to be hard. There's going to be many obstacles, mostly people, but uh, as obstacles. But we're not going to stop. What's strange, perhaps, for some people in Bosnia is that you went from an engineering career, an electrical electronic engineering, into the biotech industry. And for many people in Bosnia, that seems like a leap too far. How do you go from a particular discipline to another discipline? We constantly bring through the theme of interdisciplinarity in our podcast as the future. So can you actually explain how you went from the degree that you studied to an area now that's you know, sort of intertwined amongst other disciplines? And how do you make that leap? And what were the steps in between getting to Veritas from your actual you know, college degree? I think the, the biggest barrier in, for engineers and mathematicians um, 
to approach the science skills of science biology or healthcare for that matter is terminology. You know, it's just, it's the acronyms and the terminology. If you look at the complexity of the problems in biology, they're much, much, much easier than some of the mathematically complex, you know, concepts that we deal with in wireless communications and, you know, and signal processing. I mean, people take it for granted that you can take your cell phone and do a video call going 80 miles an hour on the highway. I mean, the, the, the technology behind it is just incredibly complex, yet it's just, you know, far and away. And so you can think that getting into wireless communications is just, why would I even start? Well, how can I even get into wireless communications? But it's a computer and it's programmable and so forth. The basic understanding is that the human cells are now programmable. Everything has changed into the human genome project. Effectively, the genetics of a cell are the software, the cell is the hardware, and we get to play. We get to understand how it works, and we get to now edit and change the DNA, and we get to play with it. And if you look at how complex that is, it's like they're simple, straightforward recipes. You know, add this many milliliters of this and follow A, B, and C, and a lot of it is down using robotics and so forth to follow certain steps to get the bio, you know, biology to behave like a computer. And so that's really, um, you know, it's a natural progression of application. That's one side of it, just simply from a career point of view. Once you figure out the terminology and the acronyms and so forth, it's really not that hard. The other one is if you're an entrepreneur, that's just a place to be. I mean, there's just enough pizza delivery apps out there, you know. <laughs> If you really want to make a meaningful impact, which is usually what entrepreneurs are driven by first, not money, but meaningful impact, then you make it in healthcare, make it in people's health and their understanding, something cutting edge. And right now, cutting edge developments in computer science, besides the sort of deep, uh, you know, hardcore, you know, applications and development on silicone manufacturing and so forth, they're all sort of in business model innovation. So as an entrepreneur, you have to be in healthcare if you want to be, you know, I think it was Steve Jobs who said in his autobiography or the biography written about him, that if he was starting out now, that he would be in biotech. So I would advise young people to, to, um, to just take the leap uh, you know, let the terminology kind of come to them, not be concerned or scared about it. And really, they'll realize that um, conceptually things are not that hard. Since you have combined all of these different areas and you work in genomics, you also talked a lot about the art, uh, impact of artificial intelligence in the future. If we talk about the future, what do you think is the future going to look like, given all of these different, these disruptive technology? What would you predict and how should people, human beings and governments respond to those coming changes? The governments tend to lag behind scientific innovation, right? You know, be it regulation or be it markets, et cetera, they tend to come after the innovation has happened. They tend to underestimate the potential and the impact of the technology as well. The impact of artificial intelligence and on governments tends to be something that they deal with retrospectively, right? It happens and then they figure out how to regulate and what to do. Innovation generally follows that trajectory. So it's no different um, in this particular case. Uh, but the changes, uh, the speed of changes that artificial intelligence, the cycle has, 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 has increased tremendously. I'm talking about the fact that it took 40 years for the computers to become what they are. It took 20 years for the internet to change our lives. It took, you know, 10 years. And we're now getting down to where the cycle of drastic changes is down to two, three, four years. When you combine with artificial intelligence, machine learning, artificial intelligence is a general concept, right? Uh, machine learning, computational power, what they're going to do for human life and healthcare going forward and at, at the rate of change. It is just going to be incredible. It already is absolutely incredible. The impediment that we have in using massive amounts of progress in order to, to, to see massive progress with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare is the data. You know, you need to have data, you need to have access to it, 
and you know electronic records and, and medical records are both incomplete and incompatible and hard to get to and private if you want to train an ai machine to figure out if it's a dog or a person in a picture you have gazillions of pictures and things out there easily to you know training sets and that's much much harder than healthcare and so as we are now starting you know and it sounds really sounds funny to anybody younger for sure it's like we're digitizing our health records. Like they're like, well, what's the alternative? Like, <laughs> what do you mean you're digitizing them when you well, you're using crayons before? Like, you know, everybody has computers, but you go to a doctor's office and there's just rows and rows of papers, you know. And uh, we're starting to do that in healthcare. The data is becoming available, and you know, genomics plays a very big role, and we play a big role in that world in that space to sort of elucidate, you know, to sort of shine the light on certain, you know, characteristics and concepts in healthcare that were previously impossible to figure out. I'll give you a very specific example. So one important data set is family history for anybody. Imagine, in Bosnia, people don't talk about disease and stuff. Family history is for families, certainly not something you would discuss with everybody else. But it's such an important determinant of what you know your inheritance factors right it's it's always on the same clipboard in a doctor's office you know do you have a family history of heart blood pressure diabetes uh, cancer this disease that disease because it helps them narrow their you know uh, preventive treatment and understand you well that's just not going to happen for a long time until we have you know detailed family history and it's you know imperfect to start with because it's whatever your aunt told you or your mother decided to mention or not, or no one ever knew what grandmother died from. She just died, she was old. With those imperfect you know, types of data, it's hard to train your artificial intelligence machines and engines, but now comes genomics. You can't hide, it's in your genetics. You know, your real inherited you know, family history is in your genes and it's in your genome. So there we can see that you have you know, we can see your ancestry. How do we know ancestry? How do we figure out where people are from? It's because certain mutations in specific places in your genome are common with people who are from that specific region. They happen to have those similar mutations. Therefore, that is probably where you came from. Now, whether those are good or bad mutations, it doesn't matter. Same applies to the disease, right? So your ancestry and your family history are really in your gene and your genetics. And now that we're doing whole genomes of millions of people, now we are really using you know, analytical data to drive decisions about understanding your risks of inherited diseases, your future risks. Or, and, and all that is, 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 is a way to manage limited amount of healthcare resources for preventive care and personalized medicine. Okay, what should we be worried about? There's a, like a million things out there that you should be worried about, but you cannot test everything constantly every time so if we know your family history or we know your genetic predisposition you can focus preventive uh, nutrition testing exams etc on those areas where you can maximize and improve your life so this is perfect timing for for our next question because it leads into you know uh, genetics and uh, sequencing because your company made headlines, Veritas Genetics, when you came out and said, hey, guess what? We can uh, do some sequencing now and we can do it for under a thousand bucks. And of course, this was a few years ago. And since then, you're still pushing the barriers. And of course, I want to cite you. We're sending a clear signal to the medical research community that the $99 genome will be here in three to five years time. And that sort of disruption, and going back to what you said earlier, there's only enough pizza delivery apps people can make before that just gets worn out. Um, you know, you're, you're pushing the boundaries of what's possible. And the fact that the price point plays such a big part in widespread usage adaptation of what it is that you're doing and touching on uh, the points that you made about, you know, healthcare within families, that personalization of healthcare really comes down to the price point being affordable for people that live in countries like Bosnia, but also, you know, much poorer countries around the world. So let's talk a little bit about that, how you guys managed to push the price point to sub 1,000, you know, a few years ago, and where are you right now, and where is, um, where is the future leading us to in that sense? The background of that is there were 
books written and, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of articles written about, you know, soon after the human genome uh, was decoded, you know, what will this mean when the genome is a thousand dollars? There was this sort of point in the distant in the future that the community picked out and said, oh my God, when we hit a thousand dollars, all these amazing things are going to be happening. There's actually a book written. A guy wrote this book, A Thousand Dollar Genome. I read the book on the beach one summer and I said, you know, this is going to be the tipping point of, you know, the thousand dollar computer. When you have a thousand dollar genome, it's like having the first desktop computer in 1982 or whatever that previously belonged in factories. And the equipment that we use uh, for decoding human genome, it, it's actually a perfect analogy as well. The first human genome was so hard to do, it cost $3 billion to do for one person. It was done across the continents, not just in many rooms and rooms and rooms and rooms of equipment, but many buildings, many cities, and across the continent. They literally split up the chunks. Said in Germany, you guys are working on this piece. In Australia, you guys are working on this piece, and then we're going to put it all together. It was a massive global effort, and it cost $3 billion to do the first one. Distributed computing in its making. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, it was, it was one of the greatest scientific discoveries in our history, human history. Fast forward 12 years later, we have a machine. It's still, it's like size of a refrigerator, so it doesn't really fit on a desktop, but there are smaller sequencers that do fit on the desktop. So we are at a point where you can now, the machine's still expensive, it's a million dollars a piece, and we got a bunch of them. But, um, you know, but the genome that comes out of that machine can be done you know, for a for thousand dollars or less. Now we don't make the machines. I just want to be very clear. Uh, and the reason for that is that the real value is not in sequencing, it's in interpretation. So I called a guy who wrote the book once we did the first genome for a thousand bucks. And I said, have you had your genome done? He says, no. I'm like, here we are. I'll, I'll do your genome for free. You know, you wrote the book and you write an article about us. And he agreed. And, um, and I asked him, honestly, what do you think? You know, what was your best prediction of when it was going to happen? He said it happened 10 years sooner than I thought. So remember the conversation about the cycles of change and improvement? He, for him, it was much faster. And ever since then, it's faster. It's actually not a cycle. It's a flywheel, right? You make a couple of turns, and then every turn, uh, it takes even less and less energy. It creates much faster you know, much faster cycles. And so, uh, you know, MIT uh, recognized us two years in a row for one of the 50 smartest companies in the world. And, you know, this was not a list of your, you know, backyard startups, but, you know, Tesla was on that list, Amazon, some really great names. It was an honor being recognized. And by the way, you cannot nominate yourself or ask your cousin to nominate or vote or anything. The editorial review of MIT Technology Review picks the companies based on their own criteria. So I called them. I said, why? Great, super. But tell me, why did you pick us? Now, now that it's out, like, tell us. And, you know, they said, they said very simply that the criteria for companies that make that list are companies that sense digital trends way in advance of everybody else that are going to be so transformative in the future that makes them one of the smartest companies in the world. It's clearly not about how much money the company's making or how big it is. And it can be a complex, you know, company like Amazon, but we... We, we rewarded them for their, you know, thinking about the cloud or drone delivery. So innovation can happen in any one of those. Uh, that's kind of the, uh, the impact that doing a genome for $1,000 does. Doing a genome for $100 or for $10, it's just going to further increase that, you know, that flywheel. Because that means when we're researching, we can do whole genomes. We don't have to pick genes when we're researching diseases, et cetera. Um, it means that we can help people. We've done a project in Bosnia on autistic children to help people understand uh, the genetic basis. Um, and, you know, I think we did 
don't hold me to the exact number, about 50, I believe, something on that order, 40 to 60, no, I'll call it 50. And, you know, um, 10 years ago, it was $100,000 in genome. You know, you couldn't afford to do 50, you know, to research study on 50, uh, you know, genomes. So these are the kinds that were exomes. And, you know, so these are the kinds of things that are possible. And the impact is felt. It's felt by people, you know, getting very valuable information. Because it's not, you know, when we sequence your genome, it's not only just about predictive. It's also very often to answer a question of someone who has a disease who's very concerned about it and doesn't understand uh, the root cause of it. And often you can find it in genetics, not always, but often. And you know, this happens a lot in pediatric cases with children, you know, with uh, developmental delay, neurological conditions. It happens with adults as well. So the potential for impact isn't just entirely for screening purposes, it's also for diagnostic purposes. Um, and you see it now as a standard of care in, in, in cancer development. There, no, not, not a single new cancer drug is approved without a genetic test because with genetics of the cancer, we understand which drugs actually work and which don't. So don't take the wrong medicine, save the expense of the wrong medicine and get the right medicine and the right dosage and so forth. So tremendous amount of opportunities, uh, you know, for everybody listening. And it's like, it's the early days, like we have the computer. And honestly, this machine, if you see what comes off of it, it's like the old days. I remember the DOS days. You turn on the computer and all you do is have this thing blinking in the corner. <laughs> you know? It's like, wow, what's next? Like, if you don't type something, it doesn't even tell you type something, say hello. It's like, and literally off this machine come, comes out G, C, T, and A, letters in like an Excel file, okay, come off of this machine. So the, the value and what we do as a company and the huge amount of opportunities in interpreting that information. And you could be sitting in Bosnia or Australia or Germany or in Nigeria or wherever you want, and you just need this digital information and you need to make conclusions, interpret what it means. So the, prob, you know, the, the possibilities for advancement, possibilities for innovation are accessible to everyone. You know, all you need is a computer access to the internet and you can be in genetics tomorrow. You can download a genome on your computer and start playing around with it. That's the power, that's the potential, that's what, you know, why people were so excited uh, about when the human genome was decoded for the first time. And therefore I encourage everybody to think about learning about it. And again, don't worry, it's just terminology. You know, when you, once you learn, you'll figure out it's a, you know, a G, C, T, and A, it's, that's the code. And, uh, and you can learn very quickly and, uh, and become a contributor, a valuable contributor, or, or build a career in it. Talking about genomics and about diseases, um, is there anything that we could predict at this moment or what are we going to do in order to interpret data coming now, not from a disruptive technology, but from a disruptive virus that has covered the whole world now? So how do you think is, gonna, um, is the pandemic and the coronavirus is going to impact the world and technology and genomics and the future? I'll start by saying coronavirus, a virus is piece of RNA, not DNA, RNA, very similar. It's an actual code. And a test, a PCR test that is performed today, basically has a counterpart probe of RNA, okay, that basically has the code that is specific to the virus. So when there is, uh, I'm super oversimplifying this, when there is viral, viral RNA present, it detects it by turning on a fluorophore, a light, if you like, is, is detected um, for the presence of it, which you really are looking at as viruses, a piece of genetic code. And the number of genomes of coronavirus that were deposited in this, you know, global collaborative. And you see here, December 3rd of 2019 was the first, first coronavirus genome was deposited here. So specific code to this virus. And over time, you see how this exploded. How many new, you know, specific genetic codes. Look at this one is in Poland. This one is in Sweden. This one is in Colombia. And you can see the, the mutations and the divergence from a previous one, right? So this is your genomic epidemiology of COVID-19. 
Now, we're able to track the beginning and the descendancy of these by saying, okay, these two are so very similar. There's one mutation difference, but this came from this one. It came from the one before, et cetera, right? So you can really map it, you know, contract tracing across the planet. You can see the origin of the virus coming from one country to the other, but you can also see the active cases. You can see testing rates. You can see how the virus traveled from one place to another. You literally see the virus from China coming to Europe and then coming to the U.S. and back from U.S. to Europe. Using genetics too in, in, in corona is not just to detect corona, but to understand the transmissions, the contact tracing, be it between individuals in the same city or across the state or country or the continent. And also helps us understand how the virus is changing and how do we treat it. Because the drug development cycle is very complex and costly. And if you are making a medication which is targeting a specific protein or, or specific aspects of this, of this virus, and you realize from this database that it's actually not going to be effective for 70% of the population, you may want to rethink your design. And we're lucky with corona that that's not the case that there are constant aspects of this virus that are targets that become targets for uh, therapeutic treatments. And so, uh, but, but this is a perfect example how one person working in genetics can absolutely impact the world and how we're doing everything about Corona from how we're testing it. See the inexpensive testing, the PCR testing, I'm not talking about, you know, at home testing. That's a whole separate discussion. I'm talking about highly sensitive tests is performed in, a, in, a, in an accredited lab, you know, the PCR test. It's inexpensive because you create a very specific code, remember, that is looking for a complement code on the virus. But if the virus is mutating, that, you know, that code needs to change as well. So that's another example of how to inform better quality PCR tests because then, it's, you know, the, the result's going to be it's not there. The virus is not there because it did not find a complement. All you did actually the virus is actually there you just did you know it's mutated so your complement doesn't work anymore a, a tremendously powerful tool to inform and understand the, the the epidemiology of the disease you know the contract tracing inform uh, you know uh, therapeutic options and treatment and to do this all in real time i mean i've been staring at the screen since february and seeing the viral uh, you know, mutagenesis happening and, uh, you know, and new data sets being, uh, being contributed. Tell us a little bit about the testing that you're currently doing because uh, your company has uh, also been involved. How did that come about and what role are you currently playing um, in that testing? We have a lab in China. We've had a lab in China for many years. And, you know, we have colleagues there and so forth. So we're kind of keenly aware of what was happening there. We have one in Europe as well, in Barcelona. And, and so we've, we've always had a very, as a company, kind of a global view on things. And so we were worried about what was happening in China. And as scientists, we were worried about, my colleagues were worried about, you know, the transmission rates of this and, you know, what the governments are doing about it, et cetera. But we as a company are not a corona testing lab. We're not an infectious disease testing lab, period. We do whole human genomes. That's our, that's our core business. But we had a Zoom meeting, as one does these days, and early in, at some point in March, and said, look, we have all the same equipment to be able to do this corona testing stuff. And what we really need is to take this test from a slow and you know, low-throughput test like PCR and put this on a genome sequencing machines. So we called up our colleagues at Harvard Medical School and started collaborating with a bunch of them at MIT, Harvard, Wyss Institute, you know, spoke to George Church several times for hours about this. And we concluded that on one of our human genome machines, we could put up to 100,000 corona tests per day on just one machine if we move it from PCR to next generation sequencing. Now, this presents other types of challenges. You got to all open 100,000 caps, you know. You know, you still got to get to the latest automation challenge. We faced other challenges, supply chain challenges. We couldn't buy swabs. Do you know that the swabs that are used for swabbing corona um, were basically, there was only one manufacturer left that consolidated all their manufacturing capabilities all over the world and put them where? 
in Lombardia in Italy, <laughs> where the largest outbreak, <laughs> you know. Who, who would have thought you needed so many swabs all of a sudden, right? <laughs> I mean, Murphy's Law, right? There was one manufacturer in the U.S. in Maine, luckily not too far from Massachusetts where we are, that was left and was making, you know, smaller quantities of swabs. Um, so it became less about science and capabilities and more about supply chain. So honestly, we as a company said, look, we have a responsibility here to serve our community and do the right thing. We're going to start doing, you know, COVID testing in our lab. And uh, because we, we did not have to buy a single piece of equipment to do it because so much of what we do in genetics can be done on COVID. So we, we started doing that and, um, you know, sold our and, and other supply chain issues. And we've been doing tens of thousands of Corona tests per month um, through our system. And, uh, and we'll continue to do so now here in the U.S. as we're hitting the fall and flu season. You know, my phone is already exploding constantly with friends and kids that are waking up with fevers and uh, who are just concerned about, is it Corona? Is it, uh, you know, seasonal flu? So I think it's here uh, for next six months, certainly to stay as a concern, both as a health concern, but also as sort of an individual and emotional concern, uh, especially in the winter as well. But this is also a question about transformability. So you've shown and the stronger companies, the people and companies who are less resistant to change actually prove how they are resistant to crises like this one. And we've also seen how in the ecosystem of any company or any business, what it means, even if you have only a pin supplier, like how important it can be. <laughs> Let's say about the face mask. I mean, who would have said that that's an important item before the virus just took place and the companies who were not able to transform on time, they failed definitely. But also, how could, could you tell us something about your experience with the current markets? It somehow seems like that uh, the major skill of the future seems actually to be A, your proneness to transformability and creativity at the end. You know, it's the classic you know, innovator's dilemma. Um, I'll tie this back to the cycles and the speed of changes that we're talking about. Uh, in a concept of uh, disruptive innovation is just simply that, you know, disruption can come from many different areas. It doesn't come necessarily come from your industry, right? And the incumbents just have a super hard time, you know, basically either cannibalizing their own business or defending it and not being able to switch. So in his famous book, Innovator's Dilemma, Christensen talks about, you know, people who made let's go back to the old computer days, like they made floppy disks, right? So the people who made the, you know, hard drives and floppy disks and like the big ones, when the smaller one, you know, five and a quarter and a three inch, when the three inch came, they couldn't shift the business. Like they were eaten alive. <laughs> and it's, to us, it seems such an obvious thing. You make floppy disks, you make big ones, you make small ones, the higher density. That was a huge amount of innovation that was happening at that time. And, uh, um, you know, the ones who were the leaders at that, you know, in, in making a specific product, they couldn't change fast enough. They just disappeared. I need an ecosystem and a marketplace like the U.S. and Europe for that to take place. You know, you cannot have controlled markets where the governments decide who survives and who doesn't. This is how you kill innovations. This is how you slow things down. But long story short, really, well, the, the, the transformability that you're talking about, like I was saying before with the cycles, that used to take 20 years. You had time. You sold a ton of floppy disks before somebody ate your lunch and put you out of business with a better, with a better choice, right? But, um, but then that went from 20 years to 10 to 5 to 2. You know, you know, we all talk about it. We've seen it, you know, the largest, uh, you know, hotel operator in the world doesn't own any hotel. It's Airbnb, right? The largest content maker, you know, quote unquote publisher in the old terms, doesn't own any newspapers. It's Facebook, right? It's the largest uh, taxi company in the world doesn't own taxis. You know, it's Uber. It's, you know, it's a, you know, and you would think, we would think that Airbnb, Uber, Facebook, they're not going anywhere. Forget it. You know, TikTok comes up, WhatsApp. I mean, the challenges are relentless and they're constant. So all you really have 
as a business, all you really have in value is your ability to innovate and ability of your people and the culture to innovate. It's completely irrelevant. You know, the innovation in my space, the CRISPR technology to edit the genomes as precisely as CRISPR allows us to do, came from George's lab in, at, at Harvard, among others. Um, George is a co-founder of Veritas and just an absolute wonderful human being in addition to being one of the most you know, successful, impactful scientists of our time. We call him the Leonardo da Vinci of our time. The CRISPR came out of his lab. I mean, it was discovered and shown to work in human cells. But it could, could have been another 20 years for that to happen. But no, it happened now. It happened a few years ago just. And it's completely changed our ability. Now we literally can go and take the genetic code like we do in Word and like change specific spots in it. You know, now we go and take a human cell that fights cancer in, your, in, in people's body naturally and take somebody who doesn't have the fighting ability, reprogram that cell literally by changing the code, putting it back into the human being and letting the immune system kill cancer. The company prior to this that I started with George worked in the space of immune sequencing and understanding the human immune system. And it was eventually acquired by the company that does exactly that, that you know, trains the human immune system to fight cancer. They, their data, showed that not only were they able to extend the life of patients, but the cancer was gone. You know, your immune system, just like it attacks coronavirus and, you know, and makes it, you know, go away, we build immunity. That can happen with cancer as well. By understanding of genetics of cancer, by the genetics of our, you know, immune system and so forth. So if we didn't, if these innovations are happening on a daily basis, right? A $99 genome could be replaced with a 99 cent genome in, in a year from now. You know, I know for a fact that at least a dozen efforts have been going on for a long time. You know, we see it quickly, but it takes years of people working really hard to make it happen. But they're all working in parallel, and many of them. And so innovation is disrupting things on a daily basis. And so you cannot count that you're a business is uh, going to be the same a year from now, let alone 10 years from now. But you need to be in an environment and a market that rewards that. And that's why, you know, you look at value of companies. It's like, how is this company worth $60 billion? It's worth $60 billion because it's, it's going to replace 60 other companies worth a billion dollar piece. They're all going to be going out of business. You can actually quantify <laughs> who's going to be out of business and who's going to be going, taking it forward. That's really... Uh, so, Mr. Speaking about make, making it happen, I know that you're working on a lot of things in parallel. That's the sort of guy that you are. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, funding VC funds and perhaps the angel fund angel investment fund that you've sort of been tinkering with for, for the last few months, an idea, something related to Bosnia, maybe delve into that a little bit and tell us uh, what your plans are. be happy to say, and I'll tie this back to our conversation about Boston and cluster of, you know, hospitals and universities. And so for, you know, you look at Bosnia, you look at Balkans, you know, just, you need a certain scale of and knowledge of people and, um, if you look at Balkans, you know, um, or you look at Tuzla on a micro scale, we have phenomenally smart people. And, you know, we have tremendous amount of, you know, will and brain power. Uh, what we don't have is that last remaining piece of the puzzle that exists, which is venture funding. There's no funding. There's no money to start a cutting edge company. Uh, money that is willing to take that type of a risk to create Uber in Bosnia or Belgrade or Zagreb or Skopje or anywhere, right? There's certainly money to help you, you know, build a building, you know, another hyper market center where you can sell stuff. But without that capital, which is generally referred to as venture capital, which means it's a, you know, it's a high risk. It's investing in ideas, concepts, and people, not necessarily in established businesses. Um, you know, that is, that is something that's absolutely necessary for an ecosystem like that to work. It, of course, it exists here in the U.S. and exists in Boston. It is 
started in Boston. As a matter of first venture capital firm started by a professor at Harvard Business School. And so it's no secret that it's a thriving, you know, uh, cluster uh, here in Boston. And we need to replicate that in Balkans and in Bosnia specifically. And so I intend to do just that. I intend to do exactly that to organize a number of people and bring the, the, not just the capital, but all the other aspects of venture building that a venture capital firm does, just both mentorship and, you know, experience, uh, access to market, access to people, access to companies, partnerships, et cetera. It's time to exercise our networks. It's time to exercise our access, uh, to exercise our capability, pool it together and do it without having to invent anything. Just repeat what has been done for decades here in the US and here in Boston, apply it to a unique market, a unique set of circumstances, but really run it as a venture capital firm. So that uh, will probably in the next, in the coming months, we'll be you know, making some announcements and making it a little bit more uh, public and obvious exactly what we're doing, but the concept's pretty straightforward. We're just uh, among the first people to pull together. Well, that's pretty exciting news, I think, for everyone listening to this uh, call. Uh, this podcast here, um, Miz has just announced that, you know, he's willing to support so many of you. But of course, that support requires people to be hungry for success on the other end as well. And Mirza, maybe you want to touch on a few uh, pieces of advice for young people who are perhaps listening to this podcast right now, thinking about there are challenges to market entry. I don't just want to make another pizza delivery app. I actually want to be in a more disruptive space and want to work on cutting edge technology, it would give them great confidence to hear what you're saying, but also what advice would you give them uh, as a sort of final remark as part of our podcast? Yeah, I don't know that I have advice. I, 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 I have a point of view, you know, I have a value system of my own that I think about and I'm happy to share what that is. And two things come to mind. One is confidence. If you take on any, challenge any opportunity and you start by being fearful or worried about it working or not working, if it's the right thing or not, it's, it, it becomes very difficult. You need to have a certain amount of confidence, but you need to look for the source of that confidence. It cannot just be simply pure confidence. It has to come from a good place. So like many great companies that are started, they're started with a mission and a vision, right? A mission to solve a problem, you know, make somebody's life better, improve your own, your community, improve the circumstances that we find ourselves. And that's where I find confidence for myself. You know, I look at, you know, the tremendous impact that we have and we can and will have on human health with what we're doing in the U.S. and Bosnia, impact we can have on a community by creating, you know, a network, investing in the young people. That gives me the confidence to do what we need to do every day and know that we are on a long and difficult path with lots of ups and downs, but it's like being on a boat. And if you don't keep your eye on the horizon, <laughs> all you're looking at is the ups and downs of it. So that's kind of how I think about it. That's where I go back to the source of my confidence and my you know, persistence to, to do the right thing. And the other thing that I've learned over years, and I'll go back to uh, the remark I made about growing up in Bosnia during the war, being a teenager and not really fully understanding of everything that's happening. And now that I'm a father and I have my own children, I could, you know, I just think about how hard is that on a parent to not be able to provide food and security for your own children. I didn't think about that when I was a teenager. I think about it now. What was it like for my parents and all the parents and all the people? On all the sides of the conflict, how difficult emotionally and otherwise that was. And, but I go back to what I said, that that's an experience which, you know, lives with me. And it's an endless source of inspiration. And, and, um, and it is an experience. What I'm getting at is what Steve Jobs said. He's, he goes, he's holding the quote, journey is the reward, right? So, you know, when you're confidently building a business and running at a million miles an hour, you know, don't forget that it is that journey that is the reward. Yes, there are, you know, 
goals that one can achieve. You know, I want to have a company that employs a thousand people or a hundred thousand people, or I want to make a certain amount of money. I think as an entrepreneur, as soon as you have your first significant success, you realize how small of a target and motivation that truly was for you. You know, everybody that I've spoken to who actually had that, had an exit, you know, had a significant, you know, life-changing event in that sense. It was kind of a, eh, you know, they realized the journey of getting there was the adrenaline, the, the excitement, the, the kind and good people uh, around you that made that possible. That's really where the reward is. So I encourage the young people to be confident, march on, take on giant, impossible, uh, you know, goals and tasks. It is possible and it's doable. And, you know, the universe will align the stars to help you on your way. People will come to you and around you in unexpected ways to make good things happen if you're on a good path. Just enjoy the path, enjoy the journey, you know, respect the people, appreciate them, you know, and uh, love them and uh, they will love you back and, uh, and just enjoy the journey. And there you have it. This is Bosnia and Herzegovina's answer to Elon Musk, Mirza Cifric. And <laughs> we definitely enjoyed the path with you all along this long podcast that we had. Now we heard so many useful things and it was really a joy to listen to both of you, not just you, Mirza. I really must say also it's a joy to listen to Eddie. And I, as a person from a public policy background, enjoy listening to both of you and learning from you and learning how I can, as someone coming from sources for government side, to what can I do to improve the world and how we should transform along the, the road with you. So here is it. We came to an end now with the podcast. My co-host was Eddie Chusovic. My name is Aida Hadid, and we enjoyed the podcast with Mirza. Thank you so much, Mirza, again, for the opportunity to host you on our podcast as well. And we look forward to seeing what you get up to next. It's certainly going to be very disruptive, I'm sure of it.